0: According to one recent study, more than 90% of all drivers said that they were better than average. This is the Dunning-Kruger effect times 10, because it's not stupid people who feel like they're better than average. It's all of us. Hey, it's Seth. And this is akimbo. (laughs) We'll be back in a second to talk about surgeons and you. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. Are you ready to turn pro? The Creatives Workshop is back. It's back because it works. It's our most engaged akimbo workshop. It's a workshop for people who have something to say, to write, to paint, to communicate. People who want to be creative. Come Find the others. Learn what it means to see and be seen. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, The Creatives Workshop is here to help. I hope you'll check it out. It's at thecreativesworkshop.com. We'll see you there. If you talk to a surgeon or a therapist about whether they are better than average or even more interestingly, whether their peers think that they are better than average. You might have the experience I had when I was talking to my favorite surgeon. He said, no, 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 no. All surgeons think not only are they better than average, they're probably among the very best ones. That 90% is conservative when we think about the idea that a surgeon or even a therapist might think that they're better. Why is that? Well, The blogger Scott Alexander broke it down into seven causes. I want to share a few of them so that I can get to what I really want to talk about. The first one, he's talking about therapists here, is that your patient's last doctor was worse than you. That most of the time as a therapist, you're encountering people who have left another therapist. Well, the reason they left is you're better. Number two, your patients love you. Because cognitive dissonance is real, because they have chosen to come back week after week. And when they come back week after week, they need to remind themselves that they're doing something that's smart. Number three, patients come, but they never seem to leave. Because unlike the car rental counter, it's pretty rare for a regular patient to stand up in the middle of a session and storm out never to return. What actually happens is the people who return are reminding you that you're doing a good job. But the people who don't come back, well, you just assume that their insurance changed or you assume that they moved away or you assume that they got run over by a truck or something else happened. Probably that they got better thanks to you and your excellent care. Number four, you've probably successfully treated most of your patients because after all, The patients you are unsuccessful with, they might not be dying on the operating table if you're a therapist, they just fade away. And then the last one I want to mention is number six, your victories belong to you, but your failures belong to nature. That when we are doing something as extraordinary as changing someone's mind, cutting someone open, healing them, it's easy to pay attention to how our intervention made a difference and in the times that our intervention didn't make a difference, to remind ourselves that we're not gods and we're doing our best. Once you hear Alexander's principle of professional exceptionalism, it's a real punch to the gut. And the reason is that everything that you thought was working so well probably isn't. That restaurant you're running, where all the patrons love it, well, that might be because the patrons who don't love it don't come back your work as a coach in which your best players score more and more goals? Well, sure they do, because they're the ones who are still on your team. And it goes on and on. It's very easy to decide that the inputs we're getting are the only inputs that matter. But I don't really want to talk about Alexander's Law of why certain professions think so highly of themselves. The thing is, that these professions are professions because the people in them are accredited, because it was hard to get in. And those things mean that the professionals are scarce. And because they're scarce, they're seen as valuable. But what about the rest of us? What about the creators? What about the people who have to invent things, cause the culture to change? The ones who are putting on a show, who are seeing the world as it is and trying to make it better? Well, let's talk about the corollary of Alexander's Law and the corollary of self-doubt. Because the thing is that for creatives, the opposite forces are often at work. First, since most of our work is purchased a la carte, and since there's far more supply than demand, it means that most of the direct feedback we get is rejection. We get rejected by middlemen, middlemen who purport to know what's good and what's bad because they see so many things. And we get rejected by the end users because the end users have so many choices. Second, since the work we do involves widely available tools like a keyboard or a crayon, the group of people who believe that they can do the work we do or even better improve it is very large. So when we bring a logo to a committee meeting, It is a certainty that it will not survive the committee meeting unscathed because everyone knows what a logo is. Everyone can imagine what it takes to draw a circle or a squiggle or a line. Everyone is thus the creator and consumer of logos. No special skill required. So we look at the horrible logo that Hillary Clinton used when she ran for president, and it's easy to say, I could have done better. Because a a three-and-a-half-year-old could have done better. Because anyone could have done better. Because we're busy making things that anyone could make. Number three, since many of us have a transient base of fans, meaning, for example, that music lovers like many musicians, not just one musician, if that musician stopped performing, few people would be bereft they would simply switch to some of the other options they have for music. There's a great deal of churn in the fan base. Number four, since negative criticism is easier to spread than positive feedback, most public criticism of our work is negative. Because, particularly if you're a professional, you're going to get your restaurant review read if you scathingly tear apart a new restaurant, not if you say, it's pretty good, it might even be worth the money. And, of course, people, customers, who are fairly satisfied, rarely fire up Yelp and post a four-star review. Number five, because we work in novelty, our existing customers are often hesitant to return because someone else, anyone else for that matter, can offer more novelty than we can. Here we are more than a hundred episodes into Akimbo. I am not blowing you away with the new format because I don't have a new format. If you want a new format, you're going to go somewhere else. And number six, one of the biggest ones, because creative magic is truly breathtaking, the audience, and yes, the creators, are chasing a -a once-in-a-lifetime moment. That concert we went to when we were 18 years old, that meal We ate at our first date, that engagement we had with a piece of software that totally changed the way we thought computers could work. These, by definition, are rare, so most of our interactions don't meet that standard. As a result, we are busy creating our change, showing up in the world, in a world where no one knows anything, but everyone is an expert, At the very same time, showing up with our best work in that moment for people who are hoping for a life-changing home run and who are easily disappointed when it doesn't show up, busy creating the new for the people who seek the new, and disappointing those who want the same old thing. When we spiral it all together, what we end up with is a world where almost nobody who creates gets the benefit of the doubt. Most of all, they don't get the benefit of the doubt from themselves. Now, there are two forces at work that are countering this. The first one is the idea of tribal connection. Once you have a big following, once you are the Grateful Dead or IDEO, then there are people whose identity is tied up in liking what you make. That people root for the New York Islanders Not because there's something special about the New York Islanders, but because they are fans of the New York Islanders. So if the New York Islanders do it, by definition, it reflects on us. And so cheering for us is a natural thing to do. And then related to that is the idea of cognitive dissonance. If we've decided to become a fan, if we've decided to commit to this hobby, if we've decided that we are on this train or that train, we must have made a good decision. And so we are more likely to reinforce our choice by liking it even more. So tribal identity plus cognitive dissonance plus the internet leads to stands to people who are angrily and eagerly taking the side of whatever creator they've chosen. But the fact is only one in a hundred thousand creators are chosen in this way. The rest of the people who are seeking to bring original work to an audience, don't have this benefit. And they are reminded of that every day. Because the media, the internet, the culture, keeps reinforcing the fact that there are a few people at the front of the line, on the stage, who get a standing ovation before they even begin. And for everybody else, there's simply the struggle. But the struggle is worth the journey. What's essential is we figure out how to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Because if we can't find a way to trust ourselves as we do this work, it's going to be very difficult to push beyond mediocrity, to push to extreme edges, to do, yes, work that matters for people who care. So very few creators who are telling the truth believe that they are significantly better than average when they are bringing a new idea to the world. But seducing ourselves into thinking that we are going to raise the average, that is essential if we're going to ship our work. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with four juicy questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. Thank you all for rising to the occasion and contributing your questions. I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. We got a couple about artificial intelligence, which is clearly a hot button, and then some others. Here we go.
1: Hi, Seth Renal from South Africa again. I want to thank you for your last podcast and about um, Is Seth Real? My thought is
0: we don't have to search too far. As humans, we are bound to nature. We are bound to each other. When you cut us, we bleed. We have parents. We have forefathers. We have something that computers and AI will never have. And they will never be of this earth. They will never be of here. I love technology. Make no mistake. Thank you. Would like to hear what you think about that. Thank you, Renelle. I think what I'm trying to get at is this. You and I have never met. And I have no idea if you really are a person or if somebody using GPT-2 and some good text-to-speech software with a delightful South African accent, put that question together. And in five years, there will be no way to know. And at some point, we will also build physical instantiations of things that look like people, but that's a long way off because its value is much lower in a digital world. I'm not saying that you're easily replaceable. You're definitely not. That In certain circumstances, like these low-data interactions between me and the people who are submitting a question, it might be hard to tell.
1: Hi, Seth. It's Jewel from Cincinnati. Thanks for the work you do and the ideas you bring to us through Akimbo. Sometimes when you bring an idea, I get worried. That's what happened with the AI episode. Here's my question. If people who lived in caves are humans 1.0,
0: And if we are humans 2.0, and if AI will make
1: possible humans 3.0, then here's what I wonder. When AI does so much of the work currently done by humans 2.0, what happens to all those 2.0 humans who are no longer needed at their jobs? And for humans 3.0, what do they do all day? How do they make a living? Thanks, Seth. And thanks, Alex.
0: Thank you, Jewel, for this. Yes, 1.0, 2.0, and then 3.0 are a really smart way to think about it. And one of the things that I take away about humans 1.0 is that while life was difficult, brutal, and short, that if you had a toothache, you had a toothache for the rest of your life, that we definitely have a life now that is more insulated, more comfortable, and longer. There's plenty of evidence that show that hunter-gatherers, particularly in fertile parts of the world, didn't spend that much time every day on their jobs. If your job was finding enough food to feed you and your family, it didn't take more than a few hours a day. And What we did was layer one layer on top of the other this capitalist mindset, this Protestant work ethic, this game that we play mainly for fun of how do we show up for more? Self-storage units, travel, fancy cars, all of it. Things we don't need, but things we've come to want. And that game has offered a lot of people something along the lines of meaning. And so humans 2.0 have bifurcated. Some humans 2.0 are not playing the game of more, and many are. And when we enter this other place where a lot of the jobs we imagine we were destined to do as we moved out of the caves with shovels, then to the steam shovel, and then to the desk job are now being replaced. So the question is, what will we do all day? Well, the answer might be, what did we used to do all day? Because what we used to do all day was be human, take care of each other, sit quietly, find ways to create joy or to be generous or to be in community, figure out how to adjudicate status roles in a way that gave us pleasure. All of those things haven't gone away at all. So the question is, will our leadership, will our governance, will the people who speak up decide to take the surplus that this is all going to create, and it will create a surplus, and put it to work somehow? So a simple example is, imagine what happens when your doctor or your therapist knows more than they know right now and is available to you 24 hours a day whenever you want for as long as you want for free. In that model, what will we do first with all the doctors and therapists but second with the surplus it creates in increasing our health and well-being. Lots of hard choices to make. I don't believe a thousand dollar a month universal income is the answer. I don't even think it's close because humans while we need food and shelter, also need a sense of meaning and connection. And if we simply strip away what we think of when we think of what we do all day, we will strip away a lot of what it means to feel productive, to feel connected. So there is going to be a revolution going on in the way we think about this that will make the internet shift look like child's play. Thanks, Jewel.
1: Hey, Seth. I've got something that I've been struggling with as I start learning a new domain. I'm curious how you would contextualize this and where your thinking might take you. So here goes. With so much information at our fingertips, how do we know what's worth memorizing? Is anything worth memorizing? Thanks for all you do.
0: Seth, this is a great question, and I'd like to articulate something I've been thinking about, which is that maybe there's two kinds of memorization. Maybe there is the memorization that comes with doing the work, the memorization of practice, that if you sing Old Black River by the Doobie Brothers enough times, you will be able to 20, 30, 40 years later remember the choruses. You didn't memorize it for a test. You memorized it because you wore into your brain over and over again a pattern that now you can effortlessly bring back to the fore. The other kind of memorization, I believe, is a fairly modern sort of memorization. And this is the short-term memorization of proving to an external body that somehow you put in the effort to, in the short-term, memorize something. There are countless things that I memorized on demand and I can't remember any of them. But I can still remember "Oh Black River, keep on rolling, Mississippi Moon, which keep on shining on me. And I might even have gotten part of it wrong, but I think I've memorized it. So my answer to your question is, I think it's really important we memorize through practice all of the things that affect what we do and how we do them in our professional and personal lives, because it saves us from leaving that moment of flow and looking it up. But the other kind of memorization, I honestly believe there is no reason at all to do the other kind of memorization. I cannot think of a single example of why it pays to have people memorize the 18 parts of the sailboat and then they're going to forget them the day after their test. Hey Seth, this is David from Missouri. Uh, Long time listener, first time caller. Um, I wanted to talk about your latest podcast, uh, Belief Versus Truth. Um, it seems to me that this really uh, highlights or points out the, the problems that we're having in our political discourse today. And I'm wondering, my question is, how do we get past someone who is arguing from belief? Uh, obviously, uh, the way somebody votes, the way somebody is processing political data uh, has huge consequences for all of us. So if, if you need to speak to somebody who's speaking from belief, but you want to talk to them from truth, how do you get past uh, that initial, I guess, emotional roadblock. Thanks for your podcast. David, this is a great question. We could spend an entire episode on it. Let me propose an alternative. Instead of saying to someone who is arguing from belief, let's shift gears and argue from evidence, it might be that they don't want to shift gears and argue from evidence. That It might be that belief is exactly the most powerful, productive, and satisfying way For them to engage with the world, because all of us do. All of us use belief most of the time. We don't actually understand how electricity works, most of us. We don't actually understand the quantum mechanics of gravity waves, most of us. That we are going through the world as the organisms that we are based on belief. And so, in those rare instances when evidence is actually on the table, when we can say, wait a second, Let's do the math here. Shifting gears out of belief is difficult. The alternative is to build belief on top of evidence. And we have done that in the built world. The fact is that you can be a productive civil engineer, mechanical engineer, designing bridges that don't fall down based on a belief-driven approach to structural mechanics. You can, and that's why it's so hard to go sell a new technology of how to build a bridge to certain kinds of engineers, because they're not approaching it from an evidence-based mindset, they're approaching it based on belief. That when Semmelweis showed up and tried to get doctors to wash their hands, it took 20 years for him to persuade the profession to look at the evidence, because they were basing it based on belief. But what we know is that if we can build new beliefs that work better, That you can sell because it's belief versus belief. And we can look at the underpinnings of why someone believes something. Where are the status roles? Where are the tribal connections? Where is the place where they feel safe or powerful or are avoiding fear? That if we can build pillars of belief that are actually functional, we have a chance of not only changing actions, but also uniting people back into sync, so we can move forward. Thanks for all your questions. I hope everyone is well and safe. We'll see you next time.
1: I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA Gets Right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. but When are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
0: Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.